You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Good morning. So glad that you are here today. Thank you for being here on this beautiful Mother's Day. Let me also wish all of the ladies in the room this morning a happy Mother's Day as well. So today we continue in our series through the book of Ephesians. It just so happens that on Mother's Day, we get to talk about marriage. Isn't that amazing how that works out, right? That's just the Lord and how he kind of works out all of that as well. Last week, we started in chapter 5 or the ending of chapter 5 where we talked about relationships, marriage, and and how the Bible defines marriage for you and I. And so today we want to continue and finish up chapter 5 together. You've got some notes when you come through the door, and I encourage you to follow along and write some things down and maybe have a discussion with your spouse or someone um, that uh, is close to you as well uh, later on this week about the things that we talk about this morning. So today is called a profound mystery. And so I want to say to you that I'm a champion for marriage. Understand that. I'm a, I'm a big champion for marriage, but... And you say, Mark, when you say that and you put the but behind it, then what are you going to say right on this Mother's Day Sunday morning to us about marriage? And what I want to say to you is this... That marriage is everything but sentimental. Now, I want you to understand that statement before a moment because I really get tired sometimes. I think of these uh, cards that I read at times or wedding scripts that I sometimes use in a wedding as well to paint marriage sometimes as something that it's really not. Marriage is glorious, absolutely no doubt, but it's also simultaneously difficult. Can I get an amen? Okay, good, terrific. It's okay to be honest in church. It's fine, you know. If you're going to be open, let's be open here. So it is simultaneously difficult, yes, but yet also glorious at the same time. It is burning joy, no doubt, absolutely. It is great strength. Yet at times in our lives, these relationships that we call marriage are blood, sweat, and tears. And I'm not talking about the rock group of the 60s and the 80s either. And some of you probably don't know who that is. Look it up, Google it later on, right? But I read somewhere in a book, and I think it's perhaps one of the greatest definitions of marriage, and it says this, and it's going to be on your screen. It says, a seri- marriage is a series of humbling defeats and exhausting victories. And I thought about that. That's very interesting, isn't it? That marriage is a series of humbling defeats and exhausting victories. And I thought, well, that's interesting, but that's why Paul calls it a profound mystery for you and I to discover this morning. But why does he use the word profound? You know, I've always wondered about that. And when I begin to look at the word, it talks about vastness or greatness is really what it talks about. And and so what I realize is if I put that together, what Paul is saying, what he's saying to you and I is that marriage is something that's bigger than we could ever imagine. It really is. It's larger than who we are. It's something bigger than we could ever imagine. And there is a secret to it. There is really a secret to it. He uses the word mystery. And who doesn't like a good mystery, right? So there has to be some kind of secret sauce to how all of this works this morning. And you say, Mark, you have no idea. You have no idea the mystery of my marriage this morning. And the mystery is that I've stayed with this guy so long that he should be super thankful for me. And if he has forgotten a Mother's Day card today, then the mystery is going to be solved this afternoon, right? Now, that's not what Paul is saying at all. 
That's not what he's talking about. But I want to look at this for a few moments together about what he is saying to us. So he says in verse 31 and verse 32, so I want to start there and work my way back to verse 25 in a moment. Verse 31 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound, what we just talked about, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what I realize is that there's not a relationship between human beings that is more significant or symbolic than marriage. Now, for those of you that are not married, those of you that are single, and whatever station you find in yourself in life, this sermon is for you as well. So listen very carefully, because it applies to all of our relationships, but there's something that is super significant about that marriage relationship. If you look back to the book of Genesis chapter 2, we talk from that very chapter last Sunday morning, go back, listen to it online if you missed it, then we, what we realize is that it was God himself who officiates at the very first wedding ceremony of the first two human beings of Adam and Eve. So what I realize is that it has always been God's idea. It was never man's idea. It was never an idea that you and I had out, well, to somehow to have an antidote for the loneliness in our life, you know, kind of thing. And if that's the case, then get a dog or whatever. But right, but it was always God's idea, this, this concept of marriage. And so what I see is that the man first sees the woman when he first sees her after creation of the woman. And he says, at last, is what he says. It's very poetic language. And to get a man to speak in a poetic form, something is significant, right? There's something really significant about this relationship. Because it reflects our relationship with God. We talked about that a great deal, how we're how we are created in the image of God, how God created both male and female, very different with those characteristics of his. And when he puts them together, then what, it re- what we realize is a greater reflection of God to the world around us. But what I understand, the reality of where we are is that coming to know and love your spouse can be at times difficult and it can be painful And it can be rewarding. And it can absolutely be wondrous. Just like God's journey with us. Now the difficult and the painful part. That doesn't apply to my marriage at all. Understand that, right? It's all rewarding and it's all absolutely wonderful. That's not true. Ask Reba. And after 44 years, there's been those moments. So God wants us to understand how powerful, excuse me, this relationship is. That's the purpose of Paul writing these texts to you and I this morning, to understand how powerful this relationship is. And I want to talk about that for a moment. But then I want to get to really the, the beef of all of this, so to speak, maybe. And that is that why there's so much conflict. Why is there so much conflict in marriage? And let's look at that and understand why and how we deal with that. So let me talk about a few things first about marriage for you and kind of set the stage. Paul says here that the two shall become one flesh. And we know that is a direct quote from the book of Genesis, from that first wedding ceremony. But we look at that. We've heard that in weddings before, but we never focus on a really important word there. I think we focus on the word one, but we don't focus on the word become. And that's a really important word. He doesn't say they are, but it says that they become is what he says. So what I realize is marriage is a process. 
It's a process. It's a divine work of God as man and woman embark on this lifelong journey, submitting themselves to one another while they submit themselves to Christ in a greater way. It's not an event, but it's a process. That marriage is a marathon. It is not a sprint. Understand that. It's a marathon, and it's not a sprint. So Paul is quoting from God's first marriage ceremony in Genesis chapter 2. The woman is taken from the side of man and now brought to him. And God does the joining then as God does the joining now. He talks about leaving, which is about a reprioritizing of our life when we get married. And that is that next to Christ, your spouse becomes your priority in life. More important than your parents, more important than children, but it's your spouse. It's a reprioritizing of our life. And then he talks about cleaving, that we come together and we die to ourselves, that this new identity lives, that we greater reflect Christ, and we're greater image bearers. And we live under this question, as we talked about last week, how can I serve you? We begin to live our life in light of this question with our spouse of how can I serve you? So I want to say before we begin and before you find yourself drowning in everything that we're going to say today, that marriage is a process. Understand that. Let that sink deep within your soul this morning that if you want to call your marriage a good marriage and whatever that looks like for you, then give the process an opportunity to work today so it is a process. And then he says that the mystery is profound. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what Paul does, he takes two things, two relationships, and he puts them together and makes them inseparable. And he puts together marriage, and he puts together the church for a reason. Now, here's where the water gets deep for you. That's why I wanted you to understand that this is a process. Because here's where you can find yourself sort of drowning in all of this. Because we get so caught up in these passages from chapter 5, meaning marriage, that we forget that Paul is writing about the church. He's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's writing about the church is what he's saying. So what is Paul's point? He's going to give marriage some equal time along with the topic of the church. So what is Paul's point in all of this? Let me share this with you for a moment. Because look first at the pattern of the first man and the first woman. That woman was made from the beginning as a result of an operation. That God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And what does God do? He takes a rib from Adam's side and he creates woman. It's all in the book of Genesis chapter 2. Go read it later on today. It's a great read. It really is. And God creates woman. So how does God create church? If we see this as the creation of woman, then how does God create church? It's an operation as well, isn't it? That God performs on the second Adam. We find Jesus referred to that in the New Testament. So it's an operation that God performs on Jesus on the cross through the resurrection. And from this process, the church is born. And I begin to think about this a lot, you know, and and I kind of sit in this for a while and let this sink into my heart and sink into my mind. Why, Why does Paul put these two relationships together, the church and marriage? And I begin to see at this point as well. 
And then I begin to realize a deep sleep falls upon Adam. A deep sleep falls upon Christ. One from one deep sleep is born a woman. From the other deep sleep is born the church. Woman was taken out of Adam's side. Blood poured out of the side of Christ for the remission of the sin of humankind and forms the church. The connection is absolutely undeniable of the two. You cannot separate the two. You say, Mark, you're reaching really deep to pull all of this together. No, I am not. If you go back in the book of Ephesians to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, here's what it says. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Speaking of Jesus, which is his body, it says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so what I realize, and this is the part that I think that we can find ourselves drowning in when we look at our marriage and we kind of lay this over our marriage is the pattern this morning. That we are image bearers, both individually and collectively, absolutely. But you say, Mark, you're stressing me with all this stuff about comparing my marriage to the church, about comparing my my creation to that of, of the church by putting all this together. It's really stressing me out because I can never live up to any of this. And what I say to you is this, no, you can't. And I can't either. Yes, that's why that Paul is so gracious as the Holy Spirit moves on him to write this. He uses the word become. This is about becoming. This is about a process for you in your marriage and in your relationship with God. It doesn't happen overnight. Both relationships, that of the church and that of marriage, involve imperfect people. It does. And we are to model righteousness, yes, but not a righteousness that's founded upon our own righteousness, but a righteousness that is founded upon the righteousness of Christ. So I'm saying to you this morning, on this beautiful Mother's Day, Sunday morning, to give your marriage a chance. To give your marriage an opportunity to work and to grow. It is a process, but yet it is a great call. It is a great call. As Paul, very deep, in very detailed words, he simply marries, not to use a pun there, but he marries that of your marriage relationship and that of the church. And they are absolutely inseparable. Why? Why does he do that? Because he wants you to see your marriage in this light. Understand that. He wants you to frame it as he is giving you the foundation this morning. Because as the church reveals Christ to the world, our marriage is commissioned to do the same thing. That's it. Well, I thought it was about something. Just give me a moment, okay? Don't jump to conclusions. There are other things at work here. But as the church is called to reveal Christ to the world through the proclaiming the gospel, your marriage is called to do the very same thing. And as there is conflict in the church to keep the church from fulfilling his commission to sharing the gospel with the world, then why would you ever think that you could have a marriage without conflict? I got no amens on that one, right? Did you notice that? Yes, yes. Wow. 
Yeah, it is scary. This is true, right? Yes. I, I, you ha- it, I tell you, it's like all of a sudden you're dog paddling and you, and you just got your nose up out of the water when you, when you see it in this light that this is the call to the church. This is the call to marriage. If, if you are going to you know, try to separate the two, then please go to your Bible, tear this page out, remove chapter 5 from your Bible. It is inseparable. Understand that you cannot separate the two. So this is the why there is conflict in your life. And that conflict is far more than just your husband getting up in the middle of the night and leaving the toilet seat up and he never puts it down. And then you know that what happens after that, right? It's much more than those kinds of things in our life. It's much more than you getting upset at your wife because she squeezes the tube of toothpaste from the middle and not from the end. And I've never understood that myself. I have not. But it's, it's absolutely more than that. It's why C.S. Lewis in his writings about marriage, he says marriage is most like a crucifixion. It's more than just being difficult. I think it helps us to understand why it's difficult. I think that's the point. And maybe for some of you, this is a, oh, a light just came on moment, right? This is an aha moment for you. Maybe you realize this is why there is conflict. This is why there is those tough moments in your relationship with your husband or your wife. Now you understand why Paul remains single, perhaps. I don't know, you know. Maybe it was or maybe it was not. I don't know. Yes, but I think with this kind of understanding and this foundation, now we can go back. And we can read verse 25, and verse 25 really has more teeth to it for you and I. Verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The context of both of those relationships, when you look at it, is conflict. It's tough to love sometimes when you want to just take care of yourself and not be sacrificial in your love of giving to another. And then you see Christ who gives himself. What does that mean? That he dies on the cross for you and I is exactly what that means. So this is absolutely a verse about conflict. Paul is clear. I wrote this in my journal this week. The pattern for our marriages is the cross and not Cupid. Is what he's saying, right? Yeah. The, the pattern for our marriages is the cross and not Cupid. For some of you that are single and you are contemplating getting married, you are having second thoughts right now, aren't you? Yes. Why choose the cross? You know, I don't want to do that. If this is a voluntary thing, right? Then, then I just don't necessarily want to get in that line right now in life. And so when we take this pattern, because you can't ignore these texts, and we lay them over our relationships, specifically the relationship of marriage, then how do the edges meet up? How do the edges meet up when Paul is saying, from what Paul is saying, and that of our relationships? So I have two thoughts for you this morning. What is God's goal? And I should have put the word ultimate in there. But what is God's goal, his ultimate goal for your marriage? What is that? And how do I get there? And some of you say, oh, to have children. Well, some of you don't have children. Or some of you don't want to have children. Or some of you cannot have children. So I think that, well, that can't be the ultimate goal. So what is the ultimate goal of my marriage? What is it? 
Verse 26, can I tell you? Oh, thank you so much for being willing to hear this. Here's what it says in verse 26, that he might sanctify her. You say, Mark, he's talking about the church. But wait a minute, you cannot separate the two relationships here. And the way that Paul writes these verses, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so he puts these things together. So when I put 25 and 26 together, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. What is God's ultimate goal for our marriage? It is the word sanctification. Now for some of you, you have never heard that in a marriage ceremony ever, right? Yes. I, listen, I want to do this sometimes and, and really just lay it out there, right? Sanctification. It's to make you holy. It's to make you Christ-like is what it's made. So, so here's what I wrote this week. I wrote, you're learning to be more like Jesus. I should have put this on the screen. But you're learning to be more like Jesus as a sinner, By serving another sinner in close proximity for extended periods of time. That's what marriage is. Can I read that to you one more time? That you're learning to be more like Jesus as a sinner by serving another sinner in close proximity for extended periods of time. Some of you are even called to live with that person and they have directly sinned against you personally. And in this process and in this pattern that Paul gives us, you're becoming more Christ-like and they're becoming more Christ-like. And you say, Mark, you haven't been in my home because there's not a whole lot of Christ-likeness going on right now, right? Yes, it is a becoming relationship. What do we always say about sanctification? It is what? Yes, a process. Is it a four-lane highway or is it a dirt path? What is it? It's a dirt path. Yes, that we're walking very imperfectly to God. So what I realize is that if you take what Paul has said to us, you lay that over a marriage, and if you ask what is God's ultimate goal for our marriage, and that is to make you holy and to make your spouse holy. Wow. Now, when Reba and I were married 44 years ago, then this, this August, then I want to tell you, I didn't realize that, okay? I didn't know that's what this was about. I, I really didn't. I don't, I don't know. Did, did you, babe? Did you? No, she did not. Good. All right. <laughs> Terrific. That's how it's worked out for this long, right? And, and I didn't know that that's what marriage was about. I thought marriage is really just about me and her. And I, I thought that that's what it kind of was, you know. And it was to satisfy that, you know, certain things, right? And, and, and so that was, that was what marriage was about. And we were great friends and we loved being together and all those kinds of things. And I'm not saying that that's, those are not important elements of your relationship. That's not what I'm saying to you at all. No, I don't think you can throw all of that out. 
and to say, oh, this is just about this one thing. But what I want to say to you is that there has to be this ultimate purpose. And the ultimate purpose of marriage is to make you more like Christ. And that's exactly how we define sanctification. So that's what it's about. And I believe that marriages fail and they become extremely dysfunctional when the sanctification process is not realized as the ultimate goal of that relationship. It explains You know, it explains why the enemy fights so hard against marriage, doesn't it? It really makes sense why the image, uh, why the enemy fights so hard to divide husbands and wives, why the enemy fights so diligently to redefine what marriage looks like to you and I in our current culture. Why does he do all of that? Why does the enemy do all of that? Because it is simply our sanctification process. It's the process that you and I find ourselves in in life that perhaps makes us look more like Christ. Now, I want to tell you that relationships for everybody in the room, the demographics are are broad here, that relationships are for the purpose of sanctification in our lives. Yes. So everybody needs someone that's like sandpaper. Isn't that right? Amen. Can you say that's true? Yes, you do. It's the process. Yes. You say, Mark, some people are really, really like sandpaper in my life. I know, I know some people, I've had some people in my life over time that they're like, they're like sandpaper underwear, right? Yes. And and, and, the, and the longer you expose yourself to them, the rougher things get. Correct? Right? Yes. It's a process of changing us is what it's about. It's about sanctification in our life. It's a pattern. But what's interesting, I think, culturally is that we apply this concept and principle to everything but our marriage because we are told by culture that simply marriage is not about the cross, but it's about Cupid. So here's the thing that you know we apply this concept about knocking off the rough edges of our life and refining us and changing us and making us more like Christ. We, 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 you know, we relegate it to our job and our neighbor and all those kinds of things, but we never do it to this relationship. Because God's purpose in marriage is not just to make you happy with the perfect partner, but God's goal is to truly make both of you holy. It's a laboratory is what it is. It's a laboratory for your life to expose the sin of your life and to teach you to love others like Christ loved them and gave himself for others. That's why Paul calls it a profound mystery Because it's so much bigger than who we are or what we think it is. It is. And I think we just focus on the the tangible aspects of it. And and I thought about this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And this verse says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, the writer's Paul says. But the things that are unseen are eternal. 
eternal. And I think sometimes we simply go off the transient aspects of our relationships and we fail to dwell in the eternal aspects of what it means to share life with another human being. So I ask you a question this morning. The question is this. Are you looking for a way out of your marriage or or are you seeking a greater way for God to come into your marriage? I think it's a huge question. Because marriage is not a consumer relationship. Marriage is not ultimately about you, me, or us. Does God want me to be happy? Sure, God wants me to be happy. But God wants you to be holy far more than he wants you to be happy. Understand that. It's the eternal aspect of all of this. But it is a covenant relationship patterned by the gospel. So in light of that, And if it's patterned by the cross, then I have a second question, final question for you this morning, and it's this. What does it look like to carry a cross in my relationship? What does it look like to carry a cross? If the cross is the pattern for marriage, if Paul has established that, he has equated marriage to that of the crucifixion by Christ giving himself for the church, then what does it look like for me to carry a cross in this relationship? And to answer that, I have to kind of go back one chapter to chapter four for a few moments with you this morning and look at chapter four, four because chapter four is a, is a passage about about conflict. Matthew Holloman talked on this passage that Sunday. He did an amazing job. But I have to take you back to that because if we're going to answer this question, what does it look like to carry a cross for another in my relationship, then I have to talk to you for a moment before we leave about conflict. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor For we are members one of another. So it's the body metaphor again. But he's talking to the church. But we're not going to separate the two. And then if you go down to verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath or your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Then jump down to verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But also such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. And then verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And lastly, verse 32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So lay this over your marriage for a moment. Lay this over those relationships in your life. How do the edges match up? How do the, think about your speech, think about your actions. Oh, again, now you're finding yourself dog paddling, nose right above the water, right? You feel like you're drowning. Just hang on for a moment because remember, this is about becoming. This is a process. So stay with me for a moment. So how do the edges match up? Because I think since there's such a great probability and conflict in our marriages because of what is at stake in our marriages, then, then how do the edges match up? So let me give you Three quick rules this morning about your relationship and specifically about marriage. One, be angry and do not sin. You say, Mark, you just took that right from the text. I know, it's the safest way to preach. It really is, absolutely. 
Paul never said not to get angry, but he told you, get angry and do not sin. He says that to you, right? I looked up, Googled it, because we know that we can always trust good old Google, right? Number one complaint of all marriages. Number one. Interesting. What would you think it would be? Any thoughts? Oh, that, that was my first thought was money. Did you know that's not true? Did you, realize, did you not know that? That is not true. No. It's the man getting out of the shower and leaving his underwear on the floor. That is not true either. That's not it. Uh, you know what it is? It's communication. It is. It's communication. Number one complaint in all marriages is absolute that one thing, communication. That's why Paul starts out by saying to you and I in this text, be angry is what he says. I think that's so interesting. Be angry, but don't sin. So I think what we have to do in our relationships, and I wrote this in red, actually, in my notes. It's on the screen. Learn to fight fair. Oh, now you know you come on the right Sunday, right? This is the right Sunday. Learn to fight fair. Correct? Yeah. And, and so what are you talking about? Well, some of you have probably said, well, you know what? I don't know if you've ever been to one of those anniversary things, you know, parties, and somebody's been married like 60 years, and somebody, and they get up there, and they said, you know, we've been married for 60 years, and we've never had a disagreement. I want to take them back to uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. And I would say to you, then you're not very sanctified. You're not, right? Because you need some disagreements in your life to sanctify you is exactly what you need. Or you need to repent because you've just told a big lie to all of your family and friends, right? Yes. And I, I've always wondered, I've heard people say that. I've heard, I've heard people say about their parents, well, I never saw my parents argue. I never saw my parents disagree. That's because they did it behind closed doors in the closet of their bedroom so nobody would ever hear it. I want to tell you, this is why the number one complaint about marriage is that of communication. And Paul says, before anything else, be angry and do not sin, is what he's saying. Learn to fight fair. How do you do that? Well, it doesn't involve the things that he lists. It doesn't involve bitterness, wrath, anger, which means that of something different than what he starts out to talk about, clamor, slander, or malice. No. I like what Mark Driscoll says in his book on marriage. He says it's what happens when normal irritation takes on a deep-seated burning quality in your life, and it results in resentment, bitterness, and hatred. When normal irritations take on a deep-seated, burning quality. Wow. So where does these deep-seated behaviors come from? And probably if you're sitting here with your spouse, you're kind of looking over at them right now like, yeah, I'm sitting at the, you know, next to the source of, of all of this right now. And I'm not here to excuse dysfunctional behavior in a marriage, abuse in any way. That's not what this is about. But when I read those things that Paul talks about in chapter 4 of Ephesians, what I realize is that he's talking about how you react 
to someone when they have harmed you or hurt you. It's a reaction on your part is really what he is covering. If you read it in context, that's exactly how do I react in these moments when I am hurt or when I don't get my way or, or when I'm angry because of what some, someone has done or they have not done. And it's really the question of how are you reacting? So James chapter 4 and verse 1 says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He says, that's a great question. I'd really like to know that, wouldn't you? What causes these things among us? Among us? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, is what he says. That your passions are at war within you. It's not that I can't react. It's not that at all. It's not that I can't be angry. It's not that at all. That's not what he's saying. No, it's, it's not any of those things. But he uses the word passions. It's what has become so important within me that I've allowed it to morph into bitterness or anger or wrath or slander or malice. It's okay for me to be angry. It's okay for me to be upset. It's okay for us to disagree. It's okay for us to have, you know, an, an, maybe an elevated vocal discussion, right? It's okay to express myself. It's, it's okay to do those things. But when that becomes wrath, when that becomes malice, then the issue is an idol, and that idol in my life has become greater than the cross. And when I begin to react that way to my spouse, then it's an alarm to check my own heart. So I wrote in my journal this week, are we carrying their cross, or are we nailing them to it? Right? Right? I think that's something to think about. It gets quiet. I understand. I really do. I got quiet when I was reading this and writing this for myself. I did. Yes. Be angry and do not sin. So, so there has to be something else. Rule number two. Because it helps us. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's rule number two. I have one more I added. You know, I, always, I have to have three, right? So I did add another, not in your notes, not on the screen. So hang on, I'll give it to you in just a moment. As God in Christ forgave you. What a powerful thought. What some powerful words. What a powerful reference to sacrifice and forgiveness for you and I. The forgiveness that Christ has extended to you and I becomes so overwhelming in my life and your life that the issues that I'm facing that have become idols are put to death in the shadow of the gospel and what Christ has done for me in my life. Because what I treasure makes everything else trivial. Wow. I thought about that. I read that. What I treasure makes everything else trivial. Because the pattern for my relationship in marriage with you as my brothers and sisters of Christ, with those that I call friends, with other family members, the pattern for our relationships is the cross. So if I treasure the cross in my life, if I treasure what Christ has done for me in the great gospel of grace and mercy and forgiveness, 
then the other things are no longer an idol in my life that causes malice and wrath and anger and slander. So John Wesley, who died in 1791, gave an illustration of a sermon about marriage. I read the illustration and I thought wagons and wagon wheels and things like that don't quite apply to us right now. So I modernized it. Thank you, John Wesley. I appreciate it. So here's my version of his illustration. You've just got to notice in the mail that your rich uncle, who you didn't even know you had one, has left you an enormous fortune, billions. You say, now, Mark, you're redeeming yourself for all the crazy stuff that you've been saying to us, right? So your rich uncle, whom you didn't even know, has left you an enormous fortune of billions. So you're on your way to the bank to pick it up. And while on your way in your old, beat-up car, it breaks down again on the way to the bank. It's already broken down on you three times this week and stranded you in traffic. And now here you are again, broken down on your way to get this enormous fortune of billions. So what do you do at that moment? Do you get out of the car, slam the door and you swear and curse at God? Do you say things to God like, man, I knew I should have never bought this hunk of junk anyway. And it's left me stranded so many times and I regret buying it. Or do you heartily skip and run and barely notice the car breaking down on your way to the bank to pick up a fortune that will change your life forever? Because for some of us in the room, maybe the cross needs to become a little bigger and a little greater in our marriages. Because if you take away the sanctification aspect of all of this out of your marriage, if you see it as something else other than that ultimate goal that God has for you to make you more like him, then everything and every moment and every time that you have a rough spot, you're going to say to yourself, did I marry the right person? Did I make the right decision? So maybe the cross needs to be a little bigger for you this morning in your relationship. You say, but Mark, you don't understand. My my spouse never responds when I do those kinds of things. Ephesians 5 and 21 says that we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that you do it for Christ. We said this last week, I will say it again. Where is our joy and fulfillment found? Is our joy and fulfillment found in the results of serving others? Or is our joy and our fulfillment found in the act of serving others? And it's the act of serving others. Well, Mark, I just can't forgive. Now, we're doing some work here. 
I have two minutes, but we got a little work to do. And if you say that you can't forgive, then what you're saying is that the sin that has been perpetrated against you is greater than your sin against God. And I'm not sure that any of us in this room can or really want to make that statement. So rule number three, and it's where we end. Not on the screen, not in your notes. You may have to even actually old school it and write it down for a moment. Let your words be filled with grace to those who hear. It's verse 29 of chapter four. Let your words be filled with grace to those who hear. Let your words be filled with grace and not hatred and malice and retribution. You say, why do you say that, Martin? Why do you leave us with that thought? Because it is the gospel that teaches us that grace changes people, not retribution. Threats, punishment can change behavior. That's how you treat your children, right? Yes, that's what you do. Threats and punishment can change behavior, but only massive doses of grace changes people's hearts. What changed your heart when it came to redemption? Was it your fear of hell? Because if that was the catalyst, then your relationship has been built on fear, right? What was it? It was grace. It was that God came to earth and became man, died a criminal's death, and carried what you deserve to the cross so that you wouldn't have to carry that. That was the grace. That changed your heart. So we take that and we bring that into our relationship. And we find ourselves as image bearers of God, reflecting more of the goodness and the greatness and the love of God to the world around us. So we bring grace into our relationships as well. So I want to pray for you today. And I know that we have people in the room that are single and we have people that are married and we have moms and we have those that are not moms and we have just a whole eclectic group of individuals here and we will the next service as well. But there are two specific groups that I'm aware of in this room and that is men and women created in the amazing image of God as image bearers of God so regardless of your station in life that's who you are and Paul speaks to us he speaks to us 
So can I pray for you and pray with you this morning? If you would take a posture of prayer, however that looks for you, and just allow this moment of silence or whatever it might be for you, a moment for God to speak to you. I do realize that teachings like this can feel alienated, alienating to some of you in the room. And I, 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 I get that. But these overarching principles that Paul has taught us this morning transcend whether you are married or whether you are single but it goes to the heart of all of our relationships but today for this day specifically marriage because it's under such attack So let me pray for you this morning. Father, you know us. I think even greater, God, than we know ourselves. Because sometimes we lie to ourselves and we try to deceive ourselves as well. So you know truth, you know our relationships. God, you know how we project a relationship here and then the real of our relationship outside of this place and at home. God, you know the moment as couples that we put on a face of everything is wonderful, yet inside we find ourselves dealing with those idols of malice and contempt and hatred at times. So God, speak to us this morning. Father, let this be a, let this be a moment a starting place of a journey for us, a starting place for our relationships, to gain perspective about what this is all about. That your ultimate goal is to make us more like you so that we can become greater image bearers to the world around us. That, God, there is conflict in our relationships this morning. But that conflict, God, you can work in the middle of all of that. If we allow you. So, Father, are we wanting to get out of a relationship this morning? Or are we wanting to invite you in in a greater way? So, Father, bring us to that place of understanding this morning. We thank you for that, Lord. 
heal our relationships. God, create opportunities for communication. God, help us to enact these three rules in our relationships this morning. And let that begin today in our own lives. And Father, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to do one other thing. Band doesn't know I'm going to do this. That's okay. A critical part of marriage and relationships is women, no doubt. So I'd like all the women in the room to stand for a moment. Do you mind doing that for me? Just guys, males, be seated. We've established how this works last week. And I want to say to all the women in the room, we honor you greatly. I'm not going to make the puns like if, you know, if you weren't here, we wouldn't be here. Those kind of things. That's not it. But yes, we honor you greatly. Thank you. Thank you for towing the line when sometimes we as males fail in those areas. Thank you. Yeah, you do. Thank you so much for loving and caring, for your leadership, for the giftings that you have as you surrender those things to God. We pray for you. You carry a heavy, heavy load on your shoulders. And may none of us ever, ever forget that today. So can I pray for you for a moment? Do you mind? Father, I pray for every woman standing today, regardless of age. Thank you, Father, that they are equal image bearers with men in the kingdom of God. That, God, you have gifted them with leadership abilities. You have gifted them with great talents. God, you've given them so much. And so, Father, I pray over every woman in this room today as they carry the loads that they have upon their shoulders, that they would begin to realize that maybe some of those things, God, you carry for them and they would begin to relinquish those things as well to you. Father, for some of the women in the room this morning that find themselves in marriages that are inundated by conflict, oh God, that they would see that you are working in the middle of that as well. For those women that are fighting for their marriages this morning, that, God, you would empower them by the Spirit and give them great wisdom and insight and discernment as well. Thank you, Father. Thank you for their role in the home. And I just pray a blessing over all of these women in the powerful name of Jesus. Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week.